words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Last Sunday we celebrated Trinity Sunday, a Sunday to stop and think about the Trinity. For many of us, it's a big thing and there's always this question of, well it's too big so why bother? Let's just leave God as a mystery and crack on with life. And I guess most of us do that, really. The trouble is, while we still have all sorts of understandings and assumptions about God, and those assumptions play out in everyday life, and unless we pay attention to them, well, some of them might not be that helpful. So, in particular, assumptions around the nature of the relationship within the Trinity So, for example, there are a number of people who would, whether consciously or unconsciously, understand that the relationship within the Trinity is hierarchical. God the Father is in charge. God the Father is the boss. God the Father sends out the Son and the Spirit. Well, what does that matter? Well, then, then they think about it. People then apply that to government, church, families, everyday life. So, for example, the divine right of kings, which existed in Europe for a long time, was built on that assumption that within the Trinity was a, was a hierarchical thing with God the Father being the boss, so too the king was appointed by God the Father to be the boss. And everyone just needed to do what the king said, because that's what God ordained. It's in the very nature of the Godhead. And you might say, well, John, that was a long time ago. That was just history. But actually, if you listen to some people today, like the maybe ex-Prime Minister of Samoa, he's basically saying exactly the same thing. I was appointed by God. Anyone who votes against me is blasphemy. I'm your Prime Minister. Hierarchy will understand. Now, he might not say this comes out of the Godhead, but that's exactly where that's coming from. Trump supporters in America also had that understanding. Now, most of them would never have kind of named it in this way, but that's where it's coming from. So they said Trump was appointed by God through the electoral process, and just like God is the God is the boss, Trump is the boss, and all good Christians should just do what Trump says and support him, and anyone who opposes him, And anyone who disagrees with them is not being a good Christian. Because they are working against God. So we might disagree with that. But actually the problem is the understandings about what the nature of the relationship within the Godhead. That's the problem where it starts. And we can see how that works in church, where church leaders say, I'm appointed by God, just as God is the boss, I'm the boss, and you people should all just listen to me. And there's lots of church leaders today who have said that, and there's been lots of church leaders, including in the Anglican Church, who have said that down the centuries. And we can see that in families. We have God the Father, and also, well, then we have fathers and families. And just like God the Father is the boss, So the father and the family is the boss, and everyone should just do what the father says. Because he's the boss. 
Well, does that stack up with how Jesus described the relationships that we should aspire to? For example, how did Jesus describe his relationship with his disciples in John's Gospel? We looked at this a few weeks ago. What word did he use? Reaching back. Friends. Friends. He didn't describe them as servants. He said, you have been servants, you have been disciples, but now you are my friends. That's a very different kind of relationship. And Jesus came to show us the kind of relationship that exists within God. And that relationship, in John's Gospel at least, is not a relationship about being sent, but it's actually one of mutuality. And so much of Trinitarian theology has always said that within the Godhead there is a relationship of mutuality. So we see this as an Indian version, I think it's Indian, of Rublev's Trinity, uh, icon of the Trinity. And within that, within that icon, the three of them sit together around the same table. And within that is, an, is Rublev was trying to show a relationship of mutuality. They were there together. Not God being the boss, but all of them together, co-eternal, each person being revealed in that work of the other two persons, they are there together. And we can describe that relationship in terms of words like generosity and compassion and completeness when they are all together. Then they are complete of wholeness, of love, shalom, aroha. That's the kind of relationship that exists within the Trinity. That's what Trinitarian theology has said, good Trinitarian theology has said from the beginning. So how does that play out? I mean, what would happen if we ordered our government in that way? What would it look like if our church was built on that? If our families were built on that? On a relationship of mutuality? If we consciously lived out that relationship? Well, the church that does live that out the most would be the Quakers, I would suggest, where they have no one in charge, maybe an administrator is paid, and at the beginning of a service, somebody will say, friends, join me in silence, and then for the next however long the silence goes, anyone can, can stand up and, and speak about what God has shown to them in the silence, and at the end of it, the person in charge says, friends, thank you for joining me in silence very flat structure built on mutuality and generosity and compassion and all those good things. So why am I talking about this? Because, well, it's important. It's important that we pay attention to the, how we understand the relationships within the Trinity because they shape a lot of things. And most of the time we don't and then we kind of tend to go back to a hierarchical understanding. 31 years ago, around about now, the Anglican Church met in Suva and the General Synod and they, they decided that, well they probably didn't name it in this way, 
but they acted out of an understanding of Trinity that was about mutuality and compassion and generosity and completeness and wholeness. And they said, it took us a long time before we even invited Tikanga Māori to the table. Polynesia had always been at the table, the decision-making table. But actually, this is a very Pākehā table. It's our table. And we need to have a whole new table, a whole new way of relating to each other. So up until 1992 was when this was formalised. Uh, this is a three tikanga youth leaders gathering. I don't think I'm in this one, so it's probably the year after I finished. Uh, up until 1992, there were nine dioceses present at General Synod. There was the seven geographical dioceses, and nowadays those dioceses are called Tikanga Parker, Auckland, Waikato, Waiapu, Wellington, Nelson, Christchurch, Dunedin, which had some elements of Māori pastorates in them. Uh, this diocese, uh, those, the Māori church was much more integrated into the life of the diocese, but in Auckland and Wellington, entirely separate. Turned up to synod, got grilled, for every cent they were given in a way that no other council was held accountable for every cent and apart from that had nothing to do with the life of the Auckland Diocese, same in Wellington. So each, so there were those seven dioceses plus the Diocese of Polynesia plus the um, Te Piopatanga o Aotearoa. That meant seven nights the people there were Pākehā it meant much of the agenda was governed by those seven knights, the Pākehā diocese, and it was very difficult for Māori and for Polynesia to A, get stuff discussed, but also get stuff agreed to, because, well, you had to convince seven knights of the Synod that this was worthy of going down that track. And there was an assumption that our way of doing things was the right way, the normal way, who, who would want to do anything different? This is how it's been since the beginning of time. The fact that that General Synod met in Suva, I think, was important. I know in the youth networks we'd gone there the year before, and when you go to another culture, as Tikanga Parker, you suddenly realise that you are not the normal way of doing things. So when we went to Polynesia, suddenly there were way more Polynesians than us Parker. And we did things in a Polynesian way, and we were out of our depth, like we had no idea what was going on most of the time. And it was hard work, but it was life-changing, because suddenly we weren't the norm. We were simply one of the strands that made up our church. So the Holy Spirit did a wonderful thing in 1990, and it helped our church recognise that we needed a whole new table, a whole new way of being together that recognised the importance of each of the strands that makes up our church. So uh, the collect we talked about talked about those strands and it talked about a whāreki. A whāreki is a woven mat. So a woven mat, you have more than one strand, you have lots of strands which are woven together into one thing. So that's what that's talking about. The word pōhere, pō means pole, and there are lots of pō down the road there. 
uh, carved po, which tells the story of the battle here. In this case, a pohedi was the po that you tied up your waka to, so they didn't float away when the tides came in. So this was the po that each of us could tie our waka, our indrua, alia, kalia, or ships to. And it allowed us to live the reign of God in our own cultural setting in a way that makes sense in that cultural setting. And allowed each of us to make decisions in our cultural settings that actually make sense in those cultural settings. So if you look at our constitution, each tikanga has a section. So there's tikanga pākā, and we have lots of little rules in our section. And Polynesia, they have a much smaller section because they have their own canons back in Polynesia. But in tikanga Māori, there are no rules in the constitution because they are still arguing about, 31 years later, whether it is actually a tikanga Māori way to have written rules. Should we have written rules or should we be just relying on our oral tradition? And they're still arguing about that. They still haven't come to a conclusion. But for now, their section in the constitution is empty because they're trying to find how they operate in a way that makes sense in their cultural setting. And then when we come together, well, when General Synod meets and when General Synod gets it right, it is an amazing thing. I've been to five General Synods, four of them in my previous role, um, running this Youth Stewards program, so not as a representative. And just being part of that, observing it, a lot of the time it's really boring because it is just a church meeting. But there are times when amazing stuff happens, when we get it right. And my disappointment is, and my sadness is, that most of you never get to experience that. Never get to experience what it means to be Anglican in this part of the world. Because we show how we can actually be together. How we can create a new table. Most of the business is done in English, but it doesn't have to be. Speakers will speak in Tōrō Māori, speakers will speak in Fijian, and Samon and Tongan and uh, occasionally Hindi I suppose uh, and uh, it's actually on the General Synod organisers to have translators there uh, but most speakers will translate as well but not always, not always uh, sometimes there's internal arguments going on within tikanga and they will speak to each other in their common language um, and that's fine and it says no one language is the norm. All the languages are the norm. Because we operate in all of those languages. So I just want to park that for a moment and have a look at Mark's Gospel. So Mark's Gospel we have returned to. The last time we were in Mark's Gospel was ages ago in about the second week of Lent. Uh, and we've spent the rest of that time in John. We're about to go back in John a bit later on and do some Bread of Life stuff. But that's coming up later. So Mark. Mark's Gospel is the first Gospel. And uh, right at the beginning it says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we think, well that's just the beginning. But actually Mark's whole Gospel is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The whole Gospel is the beginning. 
And it's the beginning of an ongoing story, and you and I are part of that ongoing story. So Mark says, this is how it begins, and then he invites people to carry on telling their part of the story. That's why his gospel stops really weirdly. Uh, Just go to verse 8 of chapter 16, and you'll see how unusual his ending is. Now, lots of people would suggest that in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we have the theme for the whole gospel, and that says, now is the time, here comes God's kingdom. And then it uses the word metanoia, which means, let that blow your mind, change your hearts and lives, and trust this good news. That's what the whole gospel is about. And then in today, we have Jesus talking about the strong person. Jesus comes to tie up the strong person. In this parable, Jesus is the home invader. We don't often think of Jesus being a home invader, do we? We think home invaders are bad things. Well, that's what Jesus is saying is in this, in this case. He is, the, he is the one coming to tie up the strong person and burglarize. It's a very American word, isn't it? out of the translation I use today, burglarize the house, which is the whole world, which originally was God's world. And he is burglarizing that house and returning it to the ways of God. And we often kind of think about the spiritual warfare thing going on, but I wonder, where do we see the activities of the strong person in the world today? One of those ways is when we think that our way of doing things is the right way. So our understanding of how things should work is the right way. And by our, I mean us white people here. So at one extreme, there's the white supremacists. But actually, at some level, all of us do. All of us do. And we can see that in the, in the discussions around Māori wards, for example. Well, it's undemocratic if these people don't get, you know, like if they don't get elected, even if most of us, for whatever reason, never think about voting for a Māori candidate, which makes it very difficult for Māori candidates to get elected. So, my question then is, as we look around the world, what are some of those issues, and how does the Spirit of God invite us to address that as Anglicans, out of our experience of Tepohere? out of what the Spirit of God has done in our church life that said to us, maybe we didn't realise it at the time, but out of an understanding of the relationships within the Trinity, a relationship that we are invited into as the people of God, a relationship of mutuality and compassion and generosity and completeness and wholeness and aroha and love, out of that kind of relationship, Where do we see the strong powers opposing that? And how do we then speak into that? So, our city has been in the news quite a bit lately for all the wrong reasons. So last week I was down in Taupo at a clergy meeting with the bishop. And several people said to me, what is going on in Tauranga? Every time I pick up the newspaper and it mentions Tauranga, it just seems really bad. And I went, well, there are people who are pretty racist, but there are also 
are lots of people who are trying their best and struggling. And we have some big issues in the city. We have big issues like Māori wards. There's the issue of uh, whether we should rename Breton, for example. And let's face it, Cameron Road would be on the agenda as well. Uh, and um, there's the issue around speaking to Roa Māori in public meetings. There's three issues. So the question is, what do we as Anglicans, out of our experience of being a three-tikanga church, where we said, actually we don't need to invite different people to the table, we need a whole new table. We need to rethink how we make decisions, we need to rethink how we order our common life, so that each strand has its own place. And then we join together to work in a way that the Spirit of God can speak to us and we can make decisions that are good for the whole church. How do we speak out of that experience into these kind of issues? What's our Anglican take on all of this? Well, I've spoken for long enough, and I'm going to invite you people to have a conversation about that for a few minutes. What do we as Anglicans offer those kinds of conversations? Have a conversation for a while.